We spent the last three weeks here at Elevation Church going through a series called Got Dirt. And we looked at some of the parables of Jesus and how Jesus led and what Jesus wants us to do. And uh, then we celebrated Easter last weekend, the resurrected Christ. He is risen. And because of that, we have a chance to live eternally with God, our Father, who loves us very much and who sent Jesus to do that work on the cross, that dirty work for us. And today we're going to open up the book of James. And as we do, I want to share something with you. When I was preparing to teach from the book of James... I thought of a phrase I had not used or heard of in a long time. In fact, I think I was reading uh, in one of my study Bibles and it prompted this thought. And, and it's this Latin phrase that I had not, I'd heard it before, but it had been a long time. This Latin phrase, caveat emptor. Caveat emptor. Does anybody know what caveat emptor means? You've all heard it before. You haven't heard it in Latin probably in a long, long time. But it means, let the buyer beware. Let the buyer beware. And I think about that, and I think about it in context of how in the world does that fit with Scripture? Why did that find its way into my study Bible? Why did that find its way into our message this morning? And the answer is this. James was writing uh, to a culture at that time where superlatives were a common practice. And I think about our culture today, and superlatives are a common practice. We are a, a culture of consumers. Would you, would you agree? I mean, we're a culture of consumers. We like to buy stuff. Our whole economy is built on us consuming more and more bigger and greater things, spending more money all the time. And to get us to spend that money, we have people who have made it their profession to get us to desire those things. And one of the ways they get us to desire those things is they use these amazing uh, words like amazing and excellent and wow and it's greater, it's new and improved, it's bigger, it's better. You need this. They use these superlatives to describe their products and their services. And oftentimes we'll run out and buy this new, improved, latest, greatest, the best thing ever. It will change your life if you will just buy it. If you own this, you will be happy. And we buy it and, and, and then we find that it's been over-promised and it under-delivers. Have you ever bought a product that you felt like was over-promised and under-delivered? Some of you are driving them or they're out in the parking lot right now. You thought that new car was going to be the greatest thing and you were going to feel like the king of the world and, you know, 20,000 miles in, it started breaking down on you and the leather split and, you know, it over-promised and under-delivered. And James was writing to a church that in many cases was over-promising and under-delivering. And I think the church today still does a lot of this. I think we, as followers of Christ, do a lot of this. We talk a good talk. Oh, you need to know Jesus. He's the answer to all of your problems. That's true. But then we, we say that to people, and then we go and live like Jesus is not the answer to any of our problems. We tell people, oh, follow me to church. Come to church with me. I've got the greatest church. It'll change your life. And that could be true. But then they watch us, and we go live for the world six and a half days a week and we spend a couple hours in the morning on Sunday at church. As Christians, I believe, we talk a good Christian talk. We speak Bible ease. We can say the right words. We sound very holy. We sound very churchy. We sound very godly. But then we defy all of those things we say by the way that we live. That's exactly the scenario 
that James was encountering in the very early days of the New Testament church. This would have been within the first probably 20 to 30 years after Christ was crucified and resurrected that this letter that James wrote went out into the world and taught about these superlatives, this lip service that Christians often pay to the Lord. We pay the Lord lip service when we say one thing and live another way. So James addressed it. Now James was the half-brother of Jesus. He's the man who might have known Jesus the best. Think about that for a moment. James would have been Jesus' little brother, right? Because Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit before she was married to Joseph. They were engaged and all that because she was a virgin, right? We're pretty sure Jesus was her firstborn child. All right, we can go with that. So James would have have to have been not only the half-brother, but the little brother. And so from the time James was born, he was walking, talking, hanging out with Jesus. He lived his whole life with the Lord. Some of us say, I've been a Christian all my life. No, James might have been a Christian all of his life. That brother followed Jesus, like it or not, from the very beginning of his life, because his little, he was the little brother. If you have a big brother, you know, you may not want to follow him, but if he's a big brother, you follow him because he'll pound you if you don't. And I don't think Jesus ever pounded on James because we know he lived a sinless life. And I'm pretty sure when my brother pounded on me, mine's three years older, he pounded on me a lot until I got bigger than him. But that's another story. I think James knew Jesus best of all of the people who followed him because James followed him the longest. He lived under him his entire life. And James saw how the church was going. The New Testament Christian church. And it prompted him to write this. Now what I think is interesting before we dive into what James actually said, as I read through this book of James, this man who knew Jesus best, I find that James did not write about the gospel of Jesus. He did not write how to follow Jesus. James did not write about you know Christ crucified and you in Christ and Christ in you. Paul wrote most of that stuff. James, the man who knew Jesus best, looking at the New Testament church that bore Jesus' name, did not write about how to follow Christ. He did not write about how to enter into that relationship. He wrote about how to live in light of that relationship. In other words, what is our right response to the cross of Christ? That's what James was writing about. And so I want to get into that this morning. How do we live in light of the gospel? We spent the last three weeks talking about got dirt and the phrase we heard repeated many times as Jesus did something or taught something. He said, go and do likewise. His followers were to go and do likewise. Whatever he did, he said, go and do likewise. This is a go and do likewise instruction manual. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. James is writing this to the believers, to the already convinced. This was not written to a lost world. This was written to the church with instructions on how to be the church. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't waste any words, does he? He jumps right in. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature 
and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Well, what a word, unstable. You know what I think of when I think of unstable? I think of the weather we're having right now. <laughs> that is unstable. You get a cold front and you get the warm, moist air and they meet each other in North Texas at this time of the year and it is unstable. If you were here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area a couple of Tuesdays ago, not last Tuesday, I think, but the one before, like tornadoes everywhere, hailstorms, high winds, green skies. If you're ever in North Texas and the sky turns green, duck and cover, baby. I've lived here my whole life and that is bad news when the sky goes green. It's unstable. All that instability, you know, the warm, moist air, the cold air, it comes together, it wraps around each other, it boils, and, and it creates all of this instability in our atmosphere. And we get rain, and we get hail, and we get tornadoes. And that is what James says our life is like when we are double-minded. When we say one thing with our mouth, when we profess Christ with our mouth, and then we deny Him with our lives. That's unstable. And this book is written to stabilize our lives, to lead us into stable living. I think that's a very important thing as we open this book up and, and begin to dive into it to realize that's the direction that James is driving us, is towards stability. I don't know about you, I prefer stability over instability. I have fallen down before, unstable. It hurts. I would rather stay on my two feet. I've been in bad, bad situations before, unstable. I prefer to live in good situations to the best of my ability. But as James points out, we don't always have the ability to live in a great situation. Sometimes we're going to face trials of many kinds. Raise your hand if you've ever faced a trial. Amen. Hands going up all over the room. We've all faced trials. Everybody has had struggles. Everybody has had difficulties. I'm no exception. You're no exception. James was no exception. But James wrote that when we face these trials, we should consider it pure joy. You talk about countercultural, pure joy? In the midst of my struggles, my trials, my troubles, pure joy. Really, James? How? Why should I consider it pure joy? I'm glad he answered that question. He said, because these trials are a, a testing ground. They're a proving ground. They are put in our lives by God to make our faith stronger, to draw us closer to Him. When we face trials of many kinds, it's not because God is mad at us or because He's a big, angry, mean, you know, ugly God or because He's you know, that Old Testament tyrant that people want to paint the picture of. It's, it's not any of that. We face trials of many kinds because God loves us and He wants to purify and refine and define who we are and our faith and our relationship with Him. And James says that if we persevere through these trials, if we let perseverance then finish its work, we will be made mature. God will grow us up in our faith. Not just physically make us taller, stronger, bigger, faster, whatever, but He will grow us up in our faith and make us mature in our faith and 
complete, not lacking anything. I like not lacking anything. I've lived life with stuff, and I've lived life without stuff. It was called college. Like, you know, I grew up pretty good. Mom and dad gave me a roof over my head. We went on vacation every year. I wore pretty normal, but, you know, clean clothes and, you know, average middle class family. I had stuff. I didn't lack. I didn't think. And then I went to college and I lacked everything. Man, I could barely feed myself. I had like 18 roommates in a one-bedroom apartment. You know what I'm talking about. You know, ramen noodles every meal. And every meal sometimes was once a day. I lacked. And I think a lot of us perceive a lack a lot of the time. And we are chasing in this life what we think we lack. We're chasing after money. We're chasing after fame. We're chasing after fortune. We're we're chasing after um, knowledge. We chase after all kinds of things. But James says if we'll persevere through the trials, then we will lack nothing. Now, I don't think he's promising us like health and wealth gospel here. I think what James is saying is the things that really matter, that truly matter, our spiritual maturity, our relationship with God will be refined, defined, and strengthened to the point where we are so tied into Him, so in touch with His will for our lives that nothing else matters. But to get to that point, we have to persevere the trials of many kinds. And to persevere those trials, we're going to have to consider them pure joy, knowing that on the other side, God has greatness for us. Verse 9, James shifts gears. I love when the writers of Scripture do this. They, They have a general framework they're working within, but along the way, they change kind of who they're talking to and what they're addressing. And and James does that here in verse 9. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. The poor should take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, their low position, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat, and withers the plant, and its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So James is now addressing the rich and the poor. And here's what James had to say to the rich and the poor in the early New Testament church, and it's just as valid today. He said, money does not buy you happiness, and money does not buy you holiness. You cannot earn your way, buy your way, or pay your way into God's good graces or into happiness in this life. And so the the rich should take some, some joy in their lowly position because they can be made poor like that, just like the sun withers the wild flowers. And if you wonder how long that takes, just hang around for a few weeks and watch the blue bonnets disappear off the side of the road here in Texas. They will be gone in the blink of an eye. They're beautiful and in full bloom right now, but they will wither the moment this rain starts falling and the moment that that uh, May and June sun starts beating down on them, right? He said the poor should take, should rejoice in this because they can't, I mean, money doesn't buy happiness or holiness anyway, and so why should they be worried about more money? What they should both be worried about, rich and poor, is more and stronger faith. Because it is faith in Christ that gives us joy or happiness, and it's faith in Christ that creates our holiness. The Bible says we are saved by grace, God's grace, which we can't earn, don't deserve, through faith. 
that Jesus is who he says he is and does what he says he will do. He is the Son of God who came to save us from our spiritual dirt, our sin. That's all James is saying here. Rich or poor, don't sweat it. The rich can't buy their way in, and the poor are not going to miss because they don't have any money. Verse 12, shifting gears again. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Whoa, what did he just say? That sounded like a mathematical equation. There was a this and a that and a result. Let's go back and dive in. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted, nor does God tempt. I remember as a young child, probably elementary age, my parents started hauling my brother and I to church every once in a while. We didn't go to church much before that, but we started going out of the blue for, I didn't know what reason, I'm sure Brian and I, my brother and I were misbehaving wildly, and mom and dad figured the church had to be the answer. So they started hauling us off to church. We went to this church, and in the Sunday school, I remember the Sunday school teacher teaching us that God is in control of everything. Well, I figured that meant me. And so I figured that when I did good, that had to be God. And I figured when I did bad, that also had to be God. I didn't think Todd had anything to do with anything. I was just a puppet on the strings and God was playing around with his marionette named Todd. And so not too long after receiving that teaching in my probably seven or eight-year-old understanding of it. I got in trouble for something and I looked at my mom and dad with the straightest face and the purest heart and I said, God made me do it. And that's about the response I got. My mom looked at me and was like, well, what did you say? Well, God made me do it. No, God didn't make me do it. And I think I tried that over a period of two or three weeks and they either beat it out of me or I got over it or something. But Here's James teaching all of us, and I think some of us still walk with the God-made-me-do-it mentality. We've carried it over from childhood. We've applied it in our adulthood. Maybe we sort of kind of cognitively know that it's not exactly that way, but it's a great fallback position. And we say, well, if God's in control of everything and good things are happening and bad things are happening, it must be all God. James says, no. When you sin, when you are tempted to sin, that is not from God. That is from your own evil desires in your own evil heart. Ouch. Each and every one of us was born into sin. If you have children, think about this. Did you have to teach them to sin? No! I've got three. They were amazing sinners. Right out of the chutes. I didn't have to teach them a thing. I'm pretty good at it myself. I would have been a masterful instructor. But they've lapped daddy. I mean, they're just running circles around me in sin. I didn't have to teach my girls to sin. They're really good at it. And so are you, and so was I, and so has every person since Adam and Eve. We are born into a sin situation. From the time original sin entered the equation, every person 
has been born into a sin situation. We are natural born sinners and we are all in need of a Savior. That's why we talked about last week, Jesus, who God loved us so much, He sent Jesus, His Son, to die on the cross to be the sacrificial death to wash our sinful spiritual dirt off of us and make us clean so we could live eternally with God. We all have a sin situation. God is not responsible for your sin or my sin. Our sin comes from our own evil desires in our heart. And James teaches us right here that in our sinful hearts, temptation will rise up. What temptations do you regularly face? Sexual? Substance abuse? Anger? A little kleptomania like the, you know, the five-finger discount? I don't know. We've all got sin. And that sin arises from your heart. The evil desires of your heart. And James says if we do not resist that temptation, which Jesus, remember he's writing to the church here, these are believers in Christ. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to literally live inside of us. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in our heart, becomes our guide and counselor, our conscience, if you will. Picture Jiminy Cricket, but he's the Holy Spirit, not Jiminy Cricket, right? In Pinocchio. So he's there to give us wise, sound counsel on living a godly life. We need to use the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us to resist the sinful desires of our heart. Because, James says, if we don't, if we let that, that temptation take hold, we become pregnant with sin. It moves from temptation, which you haven't sinned yet, to doing it, to following up on the thing you're tempted by. Now you've entered into sin and you've given birth to sin in your life. And sin, unrepented of, remember repentance is a military term. It simply means if you're marching in this direction, you stop, plant one foot, and spin around. Blake is laughing in the booth. Blake is a Marine Reservist. He knows what a good about face looks like. That was not one. But I got pointed in the other direction, didn't I? And that's the whole thing. Repentance is turning from your sin and running back towards God. It's a 180. And if we will repent of that sin, even after we've committed it, and run back towards God, we can break the cycle. But if we don't, then James teaches the sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now we've talked about this death before. This is a spiritual death, not a physical death. This is not the dying of your body, though sin can lead to that too, but the dying of your soul. It is the eternal separation of your soul from God. We all have an eternal soul. We will all live eternally in one of two eternal destinations. Eternal separation from God we call hell. Eternal community with God we call heaven. James is saying... If we do not resist the temptation, if we do not repent of our sins, we will find ourselves eternally separated from God. He gives us the Holy Spirit to resist. He gives us the Holy Spirit to repent. He's prepared us. He's equipped us. We have what we need. We need to listen and do. Because if we don't, it leads to death. The ultimate instability. 
Verse 19. These last eight verses. James gets down and dirty now. Verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which, James says, can save you. Which can save you, lead you to stability, out of instability, and to stability. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. I'm going to just paraphrase what James said. A little common vernacular, a little simple modern day English. Here's what James says in those couple of verses right there. Shut up and listen! Shut up! And listen! I think a lot of us are running our mouths all the time. We're telling God what we want. God what we need. God do this. God do that. We're telling our friends and our family and everybody else what a, you know important person we are and what God is doing for us and what God's done. And, and we're talking and talking and talking and talking. And James said, shut up and listen. The Holy Spirit is in you. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says. The Bible is before you. Open it up. Read it. You have a church? Go. Listen. The Word of God is preached every weekend. If you come here, sometimes it's really, really good and sometimes it's really, really not. And that's me. But forget that. Listen to this. It's not the presentation that matters. It's the content. Listen to what God has to say. Because it can save you. It can stabilize you. Verse 22. Uh-oh. Do not merely listen to the Word. But you just said listen. Don't just listen. And so deceive yourselves. But do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Unstable. We would call that person crazy. The ultimate instability, right? I mean, woo! Off the chain, out of here. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Listening is not enough. Yes, we need to shut up. And we need to listen. But we need to do. And we spent the first six weeks of this year talking about shutting up and listening. We did a whole series about the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day to pour into your relationship with God, to listen to what He has to say to you, to find rest, recreation, relaxation, and relationship. We did six weeks talking about that. Investing in your understanding and your application of the Sabbath. We spent the last three weeks 
Talking about dirt and being washed clean, being made stable from the instability of all of our sin. And we found Jesus saying, go and do likewise. And here James is telling us not to just listen, but to do. To go and do the things of Scripture, the things of God. To be the hands and the feet of the Lord. To go and be the church. To go and do likewise. To follow Jesus' example. If you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus, a follower of His, Christian means little Christ. If you are one, you need to be doing, not just listening. Here's a hint. Coming to church is not doing. Opening your Bible is not doing. Giving is not doing. Those are listening things. Giving, maybe. But coming to church is listening. Opening your Bible is listening. Praying is hopefully a lot of listening and some talking. Those are things that you do as a listening aspect. The doing of the Word of God is a whole nother level. It's a whole different thing. And we're going to find out what that is right here in these last few verses. James says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. I'm going to say that again. Their religion is worthless. I'm going to say that again. Religion is worthless. Religion that our God that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, James is writing to these Jewish Christians, these very first believers. And the Jewish tradition was a lot of religion. It was going and doing this and going and doing that. And it was just this religious outpouring. You go to the temple, you pray certain prayers, you eat certain foods, you do certain things, you don't do certain things, you say certain things, you don't say certain things, you give a certain amount, you follow the, the law. It's a religious practice. You do it because it's just the thing you do. It's religion. Repetition. Doing over and over again the same things. James says, that is not what my half-brother Jesus, that is not what the Lord your God, your Savior who died on the cross called us to do. We're not to be religious. We're to have a relationship with God our Father and we're to do as Jesus did. What did He do? He cared for widows and orphans. He met the sick people that were shunned from society. He went and hung out with them. He touched them, hugged them, loved them. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Those were the worst sinners of the Jewish culture, the tax collectors. They were Jews who had turned their backs on their fellow Jews for money. Essentially had sold them into slavery. He went and did things that nobody else in culture would do. He forgave prostitutes and adulterers. He touched lepers. Jesus got down on His knees and He washed His disciples' feet. Jesus went to the garden and let Judas lead His captors to Him and let Judas betray Him and 
He let himself be beaten and flogged and tried and spat upon and abused and crucified. And he let his spirit go. He took on all of our sin. Jesus lived a dirty life. He got down in the ditch, muddy and bloody, and he loved on us. He loved on us. He loved on sinners, people who were facing trials of many kinds, those who did not turn away from the temptation, those who did not repent of the sin. He met them right there where they were, and he loved them anyway. And he said, go do likewise. And James, within a few decades of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, saw his church not going and doing likewise. They were saying it. They were spraying it. They were teaching it. They were preaching it. But they weren't doing it. And he said, it's time for us to get right, get busy, and go do the things of God. Go be the church that Jesus called us to be. Heavenly Father, this morning I thank You for the conviction in my heart about being the church that You've called us here at Elevation Church to be. Father, I pray that as we hear Your Word, that we become doers of Your Word. That we go and serve the widows and the orphans, the homeless, the hungry, the poor, the lost. God, there's a lot of people out there who are down and out. But Lord, in this community, there's a lot more people who are up and out. Those who have the material wealth and the possessions, they drive the cars, live in the houses, and wear the clothes that a lot of us would like to. We think that they don't need You. They think that they don't need You. But two out of three people in this community, Flower Mound, Louisville, Highland Village, Double Oak, are headed to the ultimate instability. A Christless eternity. Father, I pray we would leave here this morning not talking about oh, that was a good message or that was a bad message. But talking about how we go and do likewise. How we take what we have heard and go do it. Thank You, Lord, for the empowerment of Your Holy Spirit to go and do likewise. In the name of Jesus, Amen.